0: Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP and one of your hosts.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your hosts. I'm an ASCP-certified medical technologist, and I'm the Executive Editor of Journals at ASCP. Today, we're talking about life hacks for anatomic pathology, and we have a very few exciting guests.
2: Hi, my name is Sarah Garner, and I'm the Program Director for the Pathologist Assistant Program at Tulane University in New Orleans.
3: Hi, I'm Michelle Bell. I'm the Applications Manager for Milestone Medical. I'm an ASCP-certified histotech as well, and uh, I've been a lab manager for about 20 years.
4: Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Jared Gardner, and I'm a dermatopathologist and bone and soft tissue pathologist at
1: Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. Awesome, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us. Before we get started, I just need to get a little bit of CME housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA, Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, now that that's out of the way, I just kind of want to make sure all of our listeners are on the same page. Whenever we talk about life hacks, we mean things that maybe aren't obvious, but make your life easier. Like one example for my own life is I put my roll of garbage bags underneath or at the bottom of of the garbage can. So every time I take out the garbage, there's a new bag waiting for me. Right. Like something really simple like that, but you may not have thought of it. So in terms of anatomic pathology, a department that's all about process, where we take something like super precious, like a precious sample from a patient and do eight different things to it in order to uh, render a diagnosis. What are some technical and workflow hacks for AP that everyone should know?
3: So I think with the gross piece of it and the accessioning piece of it, and I think order is one of the most important things that you can establish in your laboratory, keeping things in a specific order in the same order every day so that if there is an error, it's identifiable quickly and you can figure out, you can track back to the source and and figure out exactly what happened and where that specimen should be or what that specimen should be labeled.
2: I definitely agree with Michelle. I think consistency and organization are key. So every single specimen is going to be different. Every single day is going to be different. But if you have the specific order and way that you do things, then it's going to keep everything a lot more consistent. And any questions that come up, you can pretty easily answer without even really having to think about it.
0: So for our laboratorians and pathologists, and especially our trainees, pathology trainees who might be listening, agree 100% that that initial order processing is is ideal. And many people have barcoding systems or barcode stations to help them do that. If a lab doesn't have barcoding, what are some tricks they can use to make sure that that order is maintained? Go ahead, Michelle.
3: So one of the things that I've found that was extremely useful is making sure you're not stacking specimens. So when you're accessioning, make sure that you have a break. If you do a GI specimen, then do a derm specimen after it. Don't do another GI specimen keep similar specimens from being in order. Uh, that way, if there is an error, it's very quickly identified. You'll know, you know, gallbladder isn't going to look like a colon. And so if they're in between each other, the, the, uh, the labeling error is caught much more quickly.
2: Definitely. Same at the gross bench. If you're grossing two specimens back to back, make sure they are different types of specimens. And a good rule of thumb for anybody in training and anybody ever is just to never have two specimen containers open at your bench at the same time.
4: Yeah, I completely agree. That is just like anathema, the most wrong thing to have two specimen containers open because you're just asking for trouble. I've also seen problems sometimes arise with pre-printed cassettes and people stacking those on top of containers, which I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I have seen times where things got swapped because they weren't printed at the time. And so every lab has different processes. And I think though one big take home is I think always looking at the processes in your lab. There's always a way that you can make it better, right? Or or at least always be vigilant about how can we make it better. I think it's also important to track anytime that misses or near misses occur, and then figure out what went wrong, do a root cause analysis, and, and then find a way to make it so it doesn't happen again, right? When you realize, oh, this caused a problem that we didn't for c well now we can use this as an opportunity to avoid that problem in the future
0: yeah thanks for saying that because it brings up it brings up two really important points one is that you're you know you're ultimately talking about quality improvement which is a cycle right we have quality control for the individual test we have quality assurance for the process that we're doing and we have quality improvement to look at that process to make sure it's correct. But that's a formal process and that can actually be too long to prevent a fatal mistake from happening with two breast biopsies getting confused, for example. So I think it's really important to have that daily vigilance of quality and, and as you're describing Michelle as your first comment, that order is really key to doing that. But let's let's tackle the really difficult problem though, in this particular situation, which is you're a breast lab or you're a derm clinic, derm lab or your GI lab, how can you how can that lab, Kind of have something that helps them not make these mistakes if they're doing GI after GI after GI. What's your advice for them?
4: One method that we used in the past at one of the the uh, DermPath specific labs I worked at was we would use alternating color of ink on each specimen, and so we would you know do ones yellow, ones black, ones red, ones green, whatever, and uh, that can be helpful. That in the event a swap or something like that occurs, at least if you use say six colors then chances are only, you know, it reduces your chances that you're going to have two of the same colors. It's only one in six, five of the other times it's going to be a different color and you'll be able to trace it back. I think in that case, I think also measuring specimens accurately, usually, Oh, who cares? 0.7 or 0.8 or 0.9 shave. It doesn't usually matter. Right. But it matters sometimes when you're like, wait a second, that's not the same the same piece that I have on this slide doesn't match up with what the gross said. Or it said trisected and this is actually bisected. And I've had times in the past where those tiny details that seem just like boilerplate stuff actually made a big difference and were able to help us correct a problem and figure out who the specimen, you know, belonged to and solve it.
0: Yeah, I think I think uh liberal use of ink in orderly ways is very important. Obviously haphazard use of ink is a disaster, but liberal use of ink and especially for order is really important. So thank you. I I think we've talked about these steps, these technical steps, but there are also a lot of people involved in the laboratory that do different things. I know in our work with global health, we may have one person with the pathologist and that one person is doing everything and the pathologist is doing everything else. But our more normal process that we see in the US and Europe and domestic settings is that there are many different people. So when managing or supervising the anatomic pathology laboratory with all these different people who have different backgrounds and different training, what are the key approaches that can guarantee success that you found? Michelle?
3: one of the things that I've found it can be extremely helpful is rotating through tasks because there's all kinds of studies that show if you're doing the same task repetitively over and over again, you start to lose some of that focus. And so they've kind of found that the task bell curve, I guess, is around 45 minutes. So you're peaking at that 45 minutes. So, you know, when you get to that one hour point, you should either be moving to some other task for at least a short period of time or taking a break so that you can refresh those attention to detail type skills.
0: And as the manager, how do you, for lack of a better word, enforce those those task shifts that you think are helpful for people? Is there is there an incentive system or a reminder system? Or how, how have you been able to make people excited to shift tasks?
3: People are really reluctant to change, right? They, they're like, well, we've got, we've always done it this way. And you know, my position on that is I always say, okay, well, let's try it. Let's see if you like it because you may actually like it better. And I've, I have not had a lab yet that didn't like it better because they like moving to another. They don't want to sit there for eight hours and embed. They don't want to sit there for eight hours and gross. They don't want to sit there for eight hours and cut. They'd rather embed for 45 minutes and then move and cut for you know an hour. And then go back to embedding and then, you know, they rotate through those tasks and it makes the day go much faster for them as well.
4: I've not been a official manager of very many people in the lab, but obviously work really closely with all of the lab, especially, a pathologist assistants and histotechnologists. and so I think a few things that have helped me over the years in to maximize that relationship and and make good patient care and make uh, everyone happy. One of the things I try to do is make sure that I spend time going into the lab, you know the the managing by walking around concept but but going there talking to them, asking them questions when I have things, bringing up ideas when I have suggestions, and also um, making sure that they know that they can always come to me even if it 's every single day, multiple times, and ask. And, uh, you know, how do you want us to cut this? What should we do with this specimen? Would you come take a look at this unusual situation here? I've had my histotech just recently a couple of times. They've said, this is kind of weird. How do you want us to embed this extra piece? And I love that so much. I just I just love working with PAs and histotex because I could not do the job without them. The other thing is I think cultivating an attitude of of thankfulness, which I know might sound a little cheesy, but is actually like a secret of happiness in life that I learned from my wife, who's a, a psychiatrist. So I, I can't claim credit for this, but but always thinking about um, you know, it's easy to get frustrated when when mistakes happen or when something isn't as fast or or the way that you want it. But to think about all the great things about the people you work with and about your lab and that even when a system problem happens the people are not usually the problem right it's usually a system issue and that's something that can be corrected so i try to think about all the great stuff that i have in my lab all the great people i work with all the skills that they have and the things they can do that i definitely cannot i cannot go sit cut skin for all day long and make slides i'd get like five of them done in the time they do a hundred and so I try to think about that, that no matter how much my skills may be, you know, honed in a certain area, there's always stuff that I don't know how to do. And I should be thankful that I work with really skilled professionals. And I want them to know that, you know, there's, there's not a culture of blame, right? There's always a, this is what's all about the patient and it's all about making things better. And I think anytime I ask for a rush or something special to let them know, this is why this kid actually might have, you know, a really serious thing, or they're getting transferred to another center and we're trying to maximize getting this out fast enough so they can get um, uh, urgently needed care to let them know I'm not just being, you know, extra and demanding, but that they're part of a, a team that's, that's participating in urgent patient care, I think that really brings it home. And I'll say this at least for the physicians out there, buy your lab some food every once in a while, show them that you appreciate them, you know, you're in a position to be able to do that. So I, I try to buy my lab lunch, you know, a couple of times a year or something if I can, just to let them know how, how very, very thankful I
0: am for them.
1: Yeah, if there's one thing I learned in my tech school is that my techs like to eat definitely.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I th- and I think what you're describing Dr. Gardner is is the sort of informal culture of appreciation, the informal culture of trust and relationships which is really very helpful. It requires a lot of work on both parts because you have to, you know, engage on a personal level on your time, but you can actually have formal approaches to that which happened in my old academic center at the Brigham where they assigned a pathologist to be assigned to the gross room and they assigned a pathologist to be assigned to the histotech area specifically for relationships with the technical staff so that they could address problems, give them insight, et cetera. And that massively changed the way that work came out, the feedback, like everybody was much happier. So I think formal, formally doing it can also be beneficial, especially in a large, busy practice, but absolutely in the smaller, it's smaller your practice, the more important that informal culture is to make sure that everybody understands are on a team.
3: And I know uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on that he mentioned is the blame game, right? So it's really prevalent in the laboratory because we're such black and white people. Our personalities are black and white, and we don't usually get a whole lot of training in management. Managing people means not placing blame on the individual, but placing blame on the process. Where did the process fail the employee? Because you know, it, no one goes to work thinking every day I'm going to mess up this specimen. <laughs> they they just don't. And so, you know, making sure that you're not punitive when errors are reported, I think, is really important definitely
2: agree with that. I think a lot of times people think that that's only important in training centers for trainees, but it's important, I think, in any setting, because if, the, if you have that blame culture, then people are a lot less likely to admit to things or bring things up. And then you can't fix something or make it better if nobody's willing to talk about it. So I think kind of going off what Dr. Gardner was saying too, just having that nice relationship in your lab, pathologists, PAs, histotechs, everybody involved, And being able to talk to each other about cases to make sure that you're getting the best patient care, but then also just to have the ability to call somebody and ask them to come in, and having the understanding of each other's roles, I think is really important. So one of the things that we like to teach our PA students and our residents is embedding and cutting, because how can you work with a histotech if you don't really understand what their role is, and vice versa? I think everybody needs to have at least a basic understanding of the other's role and able to be able to have those conversations with each other.
4: I'm loving the mutual respect that I feel in this uh, podcast
1: right now. Like, all the <laughs> Can way. you feel the love, right? I feel the love. <laughs> you know what? I want to circle back to something that Dr. Garner said earlier about uh, having a rush case that you need to kind of rush through the system or whatever. As we've obviously talked about, there's always so much going on in an AP laboratory at any given time things are at different points in the process or specimens that have to come in real quick. You might have to go do some autopsy work, whatever. Uh, So I really kind of want to talk a little bit about time management and how you guys kind of life hack that in your workplace.
2: I love time management. I could talk about time management for days, but it's really hard.
1: <laughs> but, but, <laughs> what, but would that be good use of our time?
2: <laughs> I feel like that would be
0: a poor demonstration of time management, sir Exactly.
2: <laughs> it's really hard in pathology labs, particularly to manage your time because every day is different. So if you have, let's say you're teaching a class, it's very easy to know the tasks that you have at hand and how
3: to do those or
2: certain lab admin tasks. But as far as like in the grocery room or in the lab, it's really hard because every single day is different. So again, that kind of goes back to the consistency and having regular kind of plans for the day. So even something as simple as just looking at the surgery schedule for the next day to know what's coming. And then what I like to do is I like to give the pathologist who's on whatever service it is a heads up like, hey, this is what your day probably is going to look like tomorrow or today. These are the frozens. So we have things like that. Because otherwise, you're just kind of like taking everything as it comes at you instead of trying to make a plan, even in a setting where it's challenging to make a plan, like a busy lab.
0: Yeah, I I think giving somebody a heads up that a 46 slot, a 46 block, you know, resection is coming across your bench. There's a point where that's like nice to do. And then it's kind of like, I kind of need to let somebody know that this is happening, right? Because that's going to mess up their day the next day. Yeah. Other thoughts about time management?
4: Well, I think from the the signing out cases perspective, you know, I, any part of the case I'm dealing with, thinking about which things are urgent for patient care, right? I mean, that has to come first, right? If there's something that needs to be done now because they're waiting on it to move to the next step uh, in an urgent uh, patient care situation, then that needs to be done right away. Everything else then I think, like, how urgent is this? How much does this need to be done? If I'm having to decide between what gets done now versus later this afternoon or tomorrow morning, I try to sort that out. I also know that there are some things That are gonna be mentally challenging. And I really need some time to sit down with this difficult case and think through it. And for me, that time is usually first thing early in the morning. I come in, you know, a lot of times earlier before a lot of people arrive. And that's the time that my brain kind of works the best for some of those things. So there's certain things that I'm like, nope, this is not a five o'clock in the afternoon case. This is a tomorrow morning case. And it's not going to be urgent for patient care. You know, this is not an emergency situation. It's a situation where we just need to get the right diagnosis and I need to think through this and not rush it. Right. So I think that's one thing I do. The other thing is thinking about like some of the other stuff outside of diagnostic or laboratory work, like the other many things that we have to do, the emails and all the other stuff in our life. What ways can we you know, cut down wasted time there? So I I try to do a certain time of day that I look at the email. Sometimes I'm, I'm bad and I'll check it in between. I turn off all the notifications on my phone. I'm not going to forget to check my email or my Twitter. I'll remember that. Don't worry. So I don't need my phone buzzing at me and telling me that all the time. So I think those are things. I've also given up on the idea of a zero inbox uh, for email and I, for a long time, it goes against every compulsive fiber of my being. But you know what? It's such a waste of time. And by the time you've cleaned out your inbox, there's more emails there. So I try to just go through at the beginning each day, start at the bottom of the the emails that are grayed out as ones I've already looked at and just hit the key, hit the hot key on Gmail. Like I think it's J or I can't remember with my fingers, I remember, but you can look up Gmail hotkeys and you can turn them on or in Outlook, just use the up arrows. And I flip through all of them and then I flag or star anything that needs to be dealt with and is not spam. And then I just get all the way to the top. And then I know at least I've seen everything. And then I can come back and easily search for the start of the flagged email and respond to it. And then the rest of it, I just let it sit in the inbox. In Gmail, it's going to take you years to run out of the space and you can buy more for pretty cheap, if you need it, uh, hopefully your outlook uh, or that your employer gives you has enough space. Although I've I've seen times where there's like, you know ten kilobytes of space in your inbox, not really, but very very tiny inboxes, and that's you know to me an egregious wrong um, in modern times. But it does happen sometimes, so those those can be more challenging situations. But I think trying to keep email and other stuff from eating into your your you know workflow and distracting you and derailing you from the process can be helpful.
0: We actually in a previous episode, which will be available before this episode. So if our listeners are interested in our Leadership Institute book club, we looked at the book Time, uh, When by Daniel Pink, which is all about time. And I gave a very similar soliloquy about how I use email, which is very different from how Dr. Gardner uses email. uh, But I have a zero inbox policy and and it works for me, but it doesn't work for everybody. And I think if you step back from your email and realize you have 10,000 or 100,000, in some people's cases, uh, unread emails in your inbox, maybe email isn't working for you. And you need to figure out what is your best way of communicating, especially if you're getting your work done and really use that as your tool and not waste your time with email. And if you're lucky enough, have somebody else that has to read it for you, which could be helpful. I don't have that luxury, but other people do other time management concepts before we uh, before we move on because I want to circle. So back. What,
3: you know, it's a little different for us as technicians. So as a manager, you know, I like Sarah. I'll pick out the things and I'll set aside time during the day that I handle those things. But what I try to do with my techs and encourage them to do is to look at their day and what it looks like and make sure you're not taking breaks when we're at our most critical points. Right? Don't take your lunch when the processor just came off. Don't take your your 15 minute break when We just got a stat specimen in and just teaching that, you know, that whole time management thing. You look, you know, this is when your workflow is. So structure your day around those, make your break points at natural breaks in your work.
0: Yeah. And and I think one of the things that really resonates with me that all of you were kind of alluding to is the idea that our whole job is to answer the question, what's in this tissue? And you can't answer that question completely until Dr. Gardner looks through the microscope right? We, we don't have any, you know, if you have residents that are working with you, then maybe they take a quick look beforehand. So when you sit down to organize your work, you may say, oh, this case needs to, I need to focus on this case. It's really important one. But if it's at the bottom of a stack of 20 cases and you don't know it's there, you know, it's not there. So I, I think thinking about dialogues and conversations that the PAs, especially when they are on the grossing bench and looking at the clinical history and the type of specimen, and they see the cross-section of it, communicating that to the text, et cetera, can allow you, I think, to create a culture where you can naturally order the cases with the pathologist so that when they sit down, obviously rushes are easy, but what are the next most important cases to look at? I think there can be communication to achieve that. But as you said, it requires that mutual trust and communication that we don't always have. And your point, Michelle, about you know not taking a break—it's like the opposite is also true. When you're in the midst of something, don't miss an opportunity to help the rest of the process by making a note or you know putting a little note on the on the histo sheet that says you know important case or something. If you feel like this is something that you know that might be rushed, which is just, just an idea. But I want to circle back to something Jerry said about uh, when he sits down at the scope to go through his cases. So so blowing that up a little bit from the diagnostic perspective, like in, when you're having to make these diagnoses and you've got, maybe you have residents, you don't have residents, you have tumor board coming up, you know, you've got to get your sign out done, et cetera. What are some tricks you have at the scope? To make your time optimal and your results most valuable for a pathologist out there.
4: Well, I mean, I i like similar to how um how you guys were talking about in the lab, you have a, a routine process you do. I try to do the same thing every time I look at cases, I turn the slide a certain way when it's done. I have those kinds of tips and tricks that most pathologists probably know. Some other things that I think that I think a lot of pathologists do, but not everybody, is using macros or codes. I think yeah, obviously you do have to make sure that you don't overuse because there are times that you could use a code that maybe has Stuff in there that's not actually accurate for that particular case. So I am really, I'm really uh, specific about what kinds of codes I use, but I have spent time building codes. I use a program called Phrase Express, but I think you can use lots of different programs. Some LISs, I think, have it built in. Also, um, even when I write out a longer comment for something that I think I probably won't encounter this situation very often, if I finally got to, you know, wordsmith it to the point that I'm happy with what it says and it's very crisp um, and I like the point that gets across, I think it communicates well, I save a copy of that. I have a big Word document with like thousands and thousands of phrases, consult letters, comments, because sometimes. The hardest thing is figuring out how do I word this in a way that really gets the message across to the treating physician. And it can take a surprisingly long time. Again, I'm compulsive. So part of that's probably because of just my inner wiring being off. But, but in any case, I figure once I've done that mental work, why not save it? Even if I don't need it again for six months or a year, it saves me that chunk of time uh, later on. That's one thing I do. I also am a big fan of dictating and I dictate and use codes together. A lot of dictating programs, you can use them to activate codes. So that stuff takes a little bit of a learning curve. And I think that scares some people off. But I think it's uh, having done it now, it is, I actually put it off for several years before learning to dictate because I thought I, it won't be good enough. It won't recognize my speech well enough. I don't think the technology's there. I'll have to train it and learn it. So i used all those excuses. And when I finally did it, I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I didn't do this sooner because of the immense, amazing amount of time savings that it has uh, got for me. So I think that that's uh, another thing I do. And I guess I also back up my files. I think that maybe is not a daily uh, help, but it does help me a decent, but I make sure I use a cloud backup service. I use Dropbox, but there are others. It's good for peace of mind to know that my files are not going to be lost in a hard drive crash, which isn't a thing that will eventually happen. If you have a, a hard drive with a moving disk, it will eventually go bad. And when that happens, if you've not backed everything up, it's a disaster. But it also, for the time-saving perspective is helpful because it allows me when I need to share files, I can easily click a link and, and say, give me the link to share this. And I send that link via text or email to someone. Here, you can download this file from here. Or, oh, here's a copy of this thing you needed. You want my CV? It's on my Dropbox. I can give it to you. I don't need to say, let me wait to get to my work computer or let me wait to open this up. I just access it through the app on my phone and all of my content is right there. And I do social media a lot. So this is an enormous time saver when I'm sharing different things online that I can easily pull it all from my cloud storage. So I think you know taking the time to learn how to do those things, um, is worth, it's worth the learning curve. Oh yeah. And hotkeys. That's the last thing, you know, learn how to use hotkeys in Gmail, outlook, word, everything it, you just Google, what's the hot key to open a document on a Mac or to do whatever. And I'm still learning new ones almost daily. And it, it seems, you know, kind of crazy at first to control shift and this and that, and, uh, once you learn it though, the time savings, I mean, I can just do like go back and forth so quickly without ever touching the mouse pad or the uh, mouse, and that is a big time savings. To not have to grab that mouse and move it across the screen. You know, if it saves you doing that a hundred times a day, that
0: adds up. So Sarah and Michelle, for you with pathology partner, your partner pathologist that you've worked for in the past, are there things that they ask you to do that, you know, when you do them, it's saving them time at the scope with either on the grossing side or the gross description, or when you're putting the slides in the tray or ordering them a certain way, are there any things that pathologists have asked you to do that you think are related to, to their efficiency at the scope?
2: I think just having a standard order of sections or something like that, that way they don't have to keep looking at the cassette summary for every case. Like If you're doing a prostate, you should do it in the same order every time as much as you can so that number one, things don't get missed and it saves them time. The other thing that personally I really like to do is do a lot of gross photos and specimen mapping because then they get to see what we're describing in our report. And while our report should be detailed enough that they can kind of picture it in their head, A picture is worth a thousand words. And if you can just do that really quickly and give that to them, I feel like that saves them a lot of time. And nowadays it's so easy to do easy specimen mapping, saves everybody time and headache.
4: You are speaking like to my heart right there. Everything (laughs) you just said, absolutely true. I also like to have the the section code and the ink code is listed separately. There's a there's a system called the Raymond Paragraph system. There's a paper published about that some of the people who trained me wrote it and it's a um, really great way to do it and I love that because I hate having to look and read along the line for where the blue ink is. And when it's in bullet point format and separated by a line from the rest of the gross description, so much easier to just quickly look down and find or to find what block A11 equals, you know. So I, I find a lot of people don't use that and I find that it it's such a time saver. I know it makes the report like a little longer, actually, but since it's all digital anyway, that shouldn't usually be a big
2: problem. No, I definitely agree with the The ink code and everything separate bullet point, it's so much easier to find. The other thing that's really helpful is if you put measurements in parentheses, that way you're not trying to scan actual sentences. You can just look for the parentheses and find what you need. It's so much easier.
3: From the histotech side, it, you know when the slides go out, the important thing that we've found is each pathologist laboratory really has a, a different system and how they uh, how their pathologists expect the slides on the trays. The trays are numbered. So you want to make sure that that is consistently done. We always left a space between cases. If they are small cases and more than one will fit on a, a tray, there's a space in between the cases. In addition to that, you always make sure that your paperwork is in order and matches. There's always a, a check as it's going out. So you're making sure that the tissue matches what it's supposed to that paperwork matches the slides, that they have all of the blocks for the case. So if there's a decal, we pull that case out and we hold it until we have the decal slide the next day. That way the the pathologist is not taking time looking for slides that aren't going to be ready until the next day. Just really simple things like that so that when they're looking at it, they're just looking boom, boom, boom. They move from case to case and each paper is is in order with what's on that slide tray.
4: To build on that the other thing i've found like at least in in dermpath is having the set way that the sections are put on every slide and now different pathologists have different sometimes strong feelings about how this should be but getting everyone in a certain group to try to come up with a standard way is nice if you can do it if you can achieve consensus and then then communicating that and building a template and a format to show the text and educating them here's the way to cut it so that every time the epidermis faces the same way. And I know that there's gonna be two profiles in the slide. And the first one is the first cut and the second one is a is a one time deeper. That's that's my preferred method is two pieces. Uh, I hate ribbons so much because they give you almost never do they give you actually extra value and they're only going four microns deeper, but I still feel compelled to look at every single piece. So it's a ton of extra time for very, very like minuscule additional value. So in any case, though, I know some people like ribbons and there are certain times where they're needed, but I do think that like whatever the the case is, the reason for this is also in addition to time-saving, it's a patient safety thing. So when I know that every time there should be two profiles, you know, one cut off the block and another, but then sometimes. There's a third or a fourth and another part of the slide, there's a chance that I might overlook that being off on the corner of the slide where it's not normally supposed to be. So if we do it the same way every time, it again it, it saves time and it adds for patient safety. Same as having the slides laid out the same way, the space between the slides, the paperwork in order, all of that get are extra layers of protection that to help avoid swaps happening, and I think that that can be immensely helpful. But it's got to be a team effort, I think, between the pathologist and the laboratory to make sure everyone understands and that everyone you know has a standard way that it's done, and then then work towards getting that to happen every time.
1: You're uh, kind of segueing me into my next question. I know we we talked a little bit before about uh, the importance of, of communication and networking within your uh, laboratory, but I want to talk a little bit more about that, as well as with your colleagues outside of, of the laboratory. Uh, what kind of approaches do you guys use to ensure that there are positive, active communication within, within and without your laboratory?
2: I think kind of going what we said earlier about the email and figuring out whether that works for you or not. And if it doesn't, then figuring out something else. So if you figure out what works for you, how you can kind of manage all your different things, especially now with social media and Zoom and things like that, where you have all these relationships with people that you don't physically see all the time. If you can manage that using some sort of technology in a way that works for you, that's great. But a caveat to that is you have to communicate that with the rest of your team. Because, say, I don't like email, but that's how everybody else communicates. I may be missing things. So, if I want to do something else, that's fine, but I have to tell someone else. So, I don't think there's one like end all be all hack that would work for every single person other than figuring out what works for your schedule and then being very clear about how you can be reached and the turnaround time that you can be reached as well. So within the lab,
3: for text, it's a little different because we have to be there in the lab, right? And so what I always found was really useful is having a periodic team meeting, depending on how large the team is. And then if I'm working, if I have an overnight team and a daytime team, I'm going to need to meet with both sets of those because we all need to kind of be on the same page. So I'm kind of that conduit between the day shift and the night shift and making sure that the communication lines are remaining open between those two shifts.
4: We regularly have uh, scheduled meetings for histology where the pathologists and the histotechs come together. I mean, we usually have an agenda to address, but also people can add new questions or issues, things to discuss. So I found that very helpful because it's formalized for one thing, but it also makes it normal to have conversations about things and how we can make them better And any issues. It doesn't feel like you're having to go knock on someone's door and be like, um, hey, I've got a problem. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a bold person. So it's not very hard for me maybe to speak up, but not everyone feels as comfortable, especially if you're in the position that's not as high up or as powerful or the supervisor role, you know, and, and yet I think for anyone listening to this who's not in those roles, the input that you can add can be enormously important and actually can be, you know, can save a patient life potentially. I've seen sometimes the texts that are junior or new and they asked some question and they spoke up when they saw something and i we didn't even realize as pathologists that that problem was occurring because they're right there in the middle of that part of the lab and they know that process better than anyone else does so when they think couldn't this be better if we did this or you know might a problem happen if this or that thing you know accidentally didn't work the way it should i feel like those suggestions no matter what level you're at in the lab and no matter, you know, how junior your rank may feel, you always have something valuable to contribute. So never be afraid to speak up. You know, you might be the person to make the process change that actually saves a patient life one day. And that's enormously important. So I think also having the standard meetings can be helpful and making sure that everyone knows that we're encouraging people to bring up ideas that they have. And I think that that goes a long way to encouraging communication and, and making sure that you always have that open door policy. Like I try to go out of my way to tell everyone in the lab, please tell me if there's a problem, tell me if you have an idea, come and get me. And, and I have to remind them sometimes to make sure that they feel 100% comfortable with that and that they don't worry that they're, you know, bothering me or being a burden. You know, and I think that's really important. And we have to be intentional, um, especially if you're a, a physician or you're a supervisor, you have to be really intentional about making sure people know this is what I want you to do. I want want you to come talk to me. I tell my my colleagues in dermatology and in other specialties please call me if there's a problem. Please let me know if you don't like my diagnosis and it doesn't make sense because I'd rather find out tomorrow that there was a big piece of information missing and I was totally wrong. Now we can fix that now before any problem happens for the patient. I would rather know now than a year from now when there's a big big problem, right? So I I think just reminding people again and again that you want to have communication. I think it makes them more comfortable communicating
3: with you. Michelle One of the things that I've found is really effective and working with, I work with a couple of volunteer organizations. And, you know, one of the things that you find is that people typically don't want to speak up. A lot of people are uncomfortable with it. And so, actually, I found that actually asking questions of my staff during the meeting and saying, Hey, you know, Sally, we changed this. What have you found your experience to be with this change? You know, drawing them out just a little bit because you have to identify those people within your organization that aren't going to be verbal and get them drawn out. And if you do, a lot of times I've found that they come up with some of the very best ideas of how to solve problems that we're having.
0: Yeah. And and I just want to elaborate a little bit on this, this idea, because something new is happening, which you are various numbers of our listeners will be very acutely aware of it, or they may not even realize it. But with things like immuno-oncology, checkpoint inhibitors, all these different targeted therapies, we have, you know, oncologists or nurses or people that are on the clinical care side that are reaching out to the lab and asking for a tissue block or asking for recuts to be sent to whatever. And it may not involve the pathologist. They may, you know, supersede that, et cetera. So from the point of view of, what I would call disconnected testing, for lack of a better phrase. You know, so Dr. Gardner looks at the case and signs it out. And then six months later somebody wants to order PDL one on the, the tumor. What have your experiences been or what are your what are your sort of solutions or approaches to dealing with that within your laboratories? And I don't want you to take a lot of time because I feel confident that We're actually going to have an entire podcast devoted to this very soon. But just quickly, what are some ways that you've approached that kind of impromptu or out of the blue or non-traditional requests from the clinical side? Michelle?
3: From the reference testing side, where our techs would be sending that out, typically, we always let the the resulting pathologist know, hey, this clinician is calling for this test. Can you make sure that it's appropriate? And um, is there anything that you want us to do special? You know, we basically communicate those to the resulting physician to make sure that because a lot of times the oncologist is ordering something and they may not really actually be ordering the right test. And so we have found it invaluable to involve the pathologist in that process and make sure okay, this is what they're ordering. Is this the route that we need to take? Or do you need to have a conversation with the clinician? Maybe there's information we're missing.
2: I definitely agree with that. I think for everybody in every aspect of the team, it's really important for everyone to understand the why behind the how, not just the how every single level, because that's really important for all of these sendouts and all of these extra tests, but also just regular daily routine work.
4: Yeah. We actually have like a policy in the lab that it goes through a certain area. The secretaries that work there pull the slides bring it with actually a sheet saying, this is where it's going for, here are the slides, here's a copy of the report, you know, which block do you want sent? And can you, you know, sign off an initial that yes, that slide matches the report, you know, that's the other thing you want to make sure that the actually the proper thing gets sent out, you know, so I think all of those things, having a policy in your lab is really important. And that way, everyone's on the same page. And everyone knows, and you're not having to figure out each time, like, Oh, what do we do?
0: Yeah. So I I think just to kind of round this out, because we've talked a lot about of technical people, processes, et cetera. But time, you know, and time, as we said, is of the essence in the AP workflow. But your life, your life is still happening um, to you before, during, and after work. It's still important. So what are your best suggestions for achieving work-life balance? Holy grail, right? That's <laughs> the holy grail question that you need to answer for us, yeah.
3: I think maintaining an active lifestyle, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's it's going out on your lunch break and taking a walk around the campus. And just allowing your head to clear and taking those moments to just kind of reflect on your day is really, really important, especially in the laboratory nowadays, because we're all being pulled in so many directions. And it's important to clear out all the noise for just a little while.
1: For
2: me, I think there's kind of two work life balances. I think there's my work and my personal life balance. And I also think there's my work life balance within my work, if that makes sense. So I think focusing on during work, the things at my job that actually make me happy at my job and maximizing my time that I can spend on those ultimately will also improve my regular work-life balance as well. So if you can find what you like best about your job, focus on that, maximize your time, because you can take all these time management skills and all of this to maximize your time to do the stuff that you enjoy. You're much happier so that when you leave, you're also much happier and then your personal life can be better as well. But I think something that I think is really important that I'm still definitely working on and struggle with is being able to say no and setting boundaries because we all are here to help patients. We're all here to help trainees. And so saying no to people and actually setting boundaries is very challenging. But as you progress in your career, you're gonna get more and more opportunities. And so you have to recognize that if you're saying yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So really just figuring out what actually brings you the most happiness inside, outside of work, and then focusing on that, saying no to everything else. As hard as it is, you got to learn how to do that.
4: Yeah. I think that the learning to say no is a really hard thing for me. Definitely. It's been, um I think we're kind of conditioned to say yes in our professional careers all along to say yes to every opportunity, to be a go-getter, to show that you've got energy and enthusiasm, but at some point you kind of the scale tips, right? And you begin having way too many opportunities and you don't necessarily need to do all those opportunities anymore. Your career is built enough, you're established enough. So then, then I I suddenly unwiring that part of your brain that's been conditioned for so long to say, yes, yes, yes. To learning to say no, sometimes it feels very, very uncomfortable, and you feel like people are going to take it personally. But I I think that one of the things that helped me to get there was just like you said—that when everything I'm saying yes to is something else I'm saying no to, maybe something that I don't know the opportunity will come up yet. But so I think focusing on the things that you like doing, to me, also the things that really give me, you know, meaning, a sense of meaning in my career, in my life. I want to focus on those things. Things that you have to do, right? I mean, we all have to work and, and make money to you know, feed our families and stuff like that. So I mean, you you have to do some things as part of your job, but I, I try to do the things that really matter to me, the things that I really have to do or the things I really like doing and enjoy. And so I think that really helps a lot to be intentional about the things we select. And also in, another thing that's helped me to say no is instead of just telling someone, no, I can't do this thing, trying to think, especially if it's an opportunity, like a, a lecture to come give or something like that, thinking who else might benefit from this, who might be good for this. And then I'm I'm not just saying no, I'm saying, oh, I can't do this, but you know who would be really great for this? Here's a few names of people that are great because then you've a promoted your college, especially if there's somebody junior to you and you're kind of getting them plugged in into the the system that's helpful to them in their career, but it also helps those outside people who are trying to fill a spot for a lecture that needs done or some, a committee or whatever, right? You're helping them instead of having to go and and do more searching, you've solved part of their problem by giving them someone they can turn around right now and send that email and move on to the next task on their list. And so you've saved time for them and you've promoted Elevated a colleague, and it's a win for everybody. And I think if so many people opened doors for me along the ways in my career, and you know, without which I could just never have done anything like I've I've been able to accomplish. And so I, I'm really always trying to look out for where are those opportunities to to bring up the people around me, and everyone wins. I think I just don't understand how some people live life with pushing other people down because a that just sucks, and it's got to feel terrible to be like that. And b when you elevate everybody else, then then it makes you feel good, and it makes those people succeed and then they love you for elevating them too. So like, it's like, it's just perfect. Everyone's happy. So I think that's been really helpful. And I think the other thing I've done for time management is as far as work-life balance, I don't think that you can probably ever totally achieve that balance, but I think something like intentionally trying to get balance is, is hopefully going to get you close enough that it works. Uh, my wife told me there's a lot of people that make it big in their career but by the time they get there they realize they've missed a lot of opportunities with their family and other relationships along the way and everyone that i met every senior pathologist people i respected in every different field they all said cherish the time you have with your kids they will be grown and gone before you know it and i thought if everyone says that there probably some truth to this so as much as the chaos of having three kids under the age of five at at the point when they were all really little i tried to just embrace it embrace the chaos And try to be home with them as much as i could and i try to i get up early and i try to get my work stuff and my writing and those things done early and then i try to leave the hospital earlier i usually aim to leave at four when i can when i'm not on frozen but i mean sometimes i got to come in at five or six to get everything done But I can then carve time out in the morning when everyone's still asleep. And when I come home, I have some time after school. We can have dinner and we can, you know, work on something together and I can have more meaningful time. Everyone's schedule is different. Obviously I, I have the luxury of being able to have that kind of a, of a schedule. And it means I have to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of sleep sometimes or other things So You have to find what works for you, but I think intentionally thinking about it and drawing some lines helps. To me, otherwise I'll just keep looking at cases. So I have to like force myself to leave. And it's really hard. I wanna do like just one more tray, just one more thing on my to-do list. There's always gonna be more to-do list. Do it later. And when I leave, I ask myself, is anyone gonna die? Or have a serious problem because of any unfinished work I have on my to-do list today. And if there is, then I better get back in that hospital and fix it. And otherwise, I need to go home and leave the rest of the work for tomorrow because there's always more work to do. And that's actually really helped me like soothe my soul is asking that question. Is any really bad thing going to happen because of stuff that's left unfinished? And if it's not, then it's okay to wait. So that's how I've made peace with it. It's been a process and I'm still working on it.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, and for those of you listening to the podcast who are intense discussions about time management, work-life balance, if they've made you at all stressed, I do highly recommend uh, When by Daniel Pink, the podcast that, we, that should be available um, while you're listening to this is also available, which is all about time and, and thinking about your time and when you use it, but also the book Mindfulness by Mark Williams and Danny Penman, which is a, an eight week stepwise guide to teach you mindfulness. And it's an incredibly powerful tool to achieve work-life balance. And I highly recommend it.
2: Going off what Dr. Gardner was saying, it's gonna sound really cliche, but just being present in whatever you're doing, because everybody, whether you're in the lab, outside the lab, is gonna have a lot of different things on their plate. And so whether you're at home with your kids or your family or at work focusing on one thing, if you're actually focused on what you're doing in that moment, you're going to get a lot more out of it. You're going to be a lot happier. And so my general advice is to minimize notifications and distractions as much as possible and actually just be present in what you're
1: doing. I think, yeah, that's that's a great end note. Thanks, Sarah. This was a great conversation. And yeah, like you guys said, we could talk about this forever. But for today, we got to go. So I want to uh, thank you guys for for participating. And I want to remind our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator.
0: And also don't forget that you can get a CME or CMLE for this podcast by listening to this or any of our other podcasts uh, on Inside the Lab, which you can find in the ASCP store at www.ascp.org. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time.